Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. I kind of feel like somebody's about to shoot the starting gun. I think that probably means I had too much coffee. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. We're actually going to start in Genesis 2, but uh, we're going to be in Genesis 3 for most of our morning this morning. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you are feeling this morning uh, enthusiastic, even awake. Some of us this morning woke up and it was still dreary and somewhat uh, gray and gross out, and that does affect us at times. The sun begins to break through and you can feel this, ah, so Friday morning I got here, I have to do the, the preaching for the online message uh, on Friday. I get here Friday morning, I read through my notes, and I'm looking out my window and it was gorgeous. And I'm thinking, I am going to preach outside. I like preaching outside. It's fun to preach outside. So I went outside to preach outside. And what I realized is looking through that window, it sure was pretty. But boy, was it chilly. And so me and the bird and the pine tree over there, the corner of the soccer field had a great time of fellowship together. And as I was talking and working through this message, I was reminded again that as beautiful as everything may appear, we forget it's all broken. And most of us are completely unaware of how broken it is. Now, some of you, some of you, and, and I'm thankful for you, some of you work in fields where you regularly get to see the brokenness of creation and humanity. And it's a hard job for many of you working in, in certain areas. And, and so I'm thankful for you, but most of us don't get to see that day in and day out. However, all of us at times have God peel back the curtain just a little bit so we can see what really lies underneath, that we can see that what we are living in, where we are currently existing, is, is this is not the way God created it to be. So you, so you remember, we, we worked through the last two weeks, God created everything and he created it, it to be good and he stood, stood back and he, he saw it as good except for one thing he noticed in his observation that Adam was alone and that wasn't good. So go with me to chapter 2, verse 21. Let me kind of ramp up to where we're going to be just to remind us of what's occurred. So chapter 2, verse 21 is, as God has made this observation that it's not good for man to be alone and, and the animals aren't fulfilling that need for companionship that Adam would have, God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and he closed the flesh at that place. The Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and he brought her to the man and the man said, this one, at last, it's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this one will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. So now everything is in perfection. Everything is in harmony. Everything is in rhythm. Man and woman are in the garden. They're keeping the garden. There is perfection. There is no death. There is no sin. Chapter 2, verse 25 is clear. It says, both the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. One of the most awkward verses in all of Scripture but it's intentional. It doesn't say they were naked and happy, although we could infer they perhaps were. It doesn't say they were naked and without 
anger and naked and without disappointment, naked and confident. While all of those things may and well have been true, what he says intentionally is they were naked and without shame. No barriers, no hiding, no pockets, no shame. That's the world we were made to live in, guys. We were made to live. This is not a nudist speech, by the way, so I'll get to there. We were made to live in a world that doesn't include shame. It doesn't include hiding. To, to live with each other and with God with absolutely nothing to hide. You know why? Because shame is the residue of sin. Now, that could be your own sin, or it could be the sin of someone against you. But shame is the residue of sin. And as God created us in perfection, there was no sin, though there was no residue of sin. There was no shame, though they were naked and unashamed. Their relationship with each other was in perfection. There was no place to hide. There was nothing to hide. No need to cover. The relationship with God was to be filled with fellowship and with communion. No worries no fear until chapter 3 verse 1 the serpent was the most cunning of all the world, wild animals that the lord god had made and he said to the woman did god really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden the woman said to the serpent we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you won't die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that, that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So let me stop for a minute just to unpack a little bit of what just happened. Satan did what Satan does. He begins by questioning God's word. Did God really say? Man, you got to know God's word. Don't take it from somebody else. You need to be in it yourself. Then Satan focuses on the restriction instead of on the blessing. Look at how he words the question. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So, so God said, hey, 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 you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Is that what God said? No. Look back at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. You get to see what God actually said to man. The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So Satan zooms in on the one rule, the one restriction. That's not even a heavy-handed rule. God had said you could do eat any fruit, any tree, have a blast. Fill your safe full with papaya and peach and what? Of course, I say apples, and people are like, "No, you're not supposed to eat the apple." We don't know it was an apple. Okay, I still think somehow it was kale, but that's all right. Um, 
You can eat from any tree at any time. And, 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 and it's like, just celebrate that. And that's the intention. Celebrate the goodness of God. And Satan goes, oh, wait, wait, wait. Did God say you can't eat from every tree? See, what Satan's doing is he's shifting the focus off of what God has actually given you. Then he denies the consequences. This is what Satan does. No, you will not die. Man, die? God's such a killjoy. He, you, you, the, yeah, no, you won't die. I mean, sure, there's some consequences, but you won't die. And then he straight out questions God's goodness to Adam and Eve. See, in fact, verse 5, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. In fact, God knows what will happen if you eat, and he's keeping it from you. God's, God's holding out on you. If you obey God, then you are missing out on something. Then you'll never really be what you want to be. You'll never really achieve what you could achieve. In fact, you won't even be truly happy. Because God's got this really good thing that he's keeping away from you and said, nope, you can't have this. And Eve literally bites. It says she took the fruit, she ate of it, she gave it to her husband, and he ate. It's a very poetic, bullet point type fall. And there's a lot of discussion. So, so where was Adam when the serpent was talking to Eve? We don't know. We do know that somehow uh, Adam is present with Eve as she takes the fruit, eats it, hands it to him. He takes it from her, and, and he eats it. And immediately, shame shows up. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Then God asked, who, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let me stop there. Just a few verses ago, naked, no shame, and in an instant, everything changed. They cover, they, they hide, they, they fashion together this, this poor outfit of fig leaves trying to cover their nakedness from each other, and that's not even enough, because then they hear the sound of God walking through the garden, and they know we're in trouble, and they try to hide themselves. That's the, the residue of sin for absolute sure. The lingering after effects of, of their rebellion and their disobedience, what used to be a relationship with, with no pockets, 
is now a relationship of quick craftsmanship to cover their shame. We used to be a relationship filled with communion and fellowship with God. Is now a fearful diving behind the trees in the hopes that the God who sees all will somehow not find them. And now, we live in a world that is drowning in shame. And we use all kinds of things to try to cover it. Alcohol. Drugs. Sexual promiscuity. Pornography. People-pleasing. Probably the most culturally acceptable one, workaholism. I take that back. There's one more and more culturally acceptable. Church. Some of you are actually here this morning trying to put a thick veneer over your shame so that no one else sees it. You're fastening together your fig leaves as fast as you can, trying to sing the songs you don't know, trying to look at the table of contents of where Genesis is, because you think this will cover it for me. Then you can go on pretending like everything's okay when everything's not okay. So we cover. And do not lose sight of how foolish it is to try to use something as thin as fig leaves to cover your nakedness. Don't lose sight of the foolishness of thinking that somehow you're going to hide behind a tree and the God who sees all at all times isn't going to see you standing there. Doesn't it remind you of the little kid hiding in the curtain? That's what we do. That covering, that hiding, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. There's really good news in Genesis chapter 3, though. Because in the middle of that foolishness, God pursues them. He asks them some very pointed questions that actually gives us the, the, the heart of God. It's, it's seen so very clearly when he walks on the scene and asks the first question, where are you? And I've said this before, and I, and I, I am more and more convinced of this the older I get. The way you hear that question asked will determine how you view God. Do you hear that question asked like an angry daddy who knows you've been messing with his stuff? Where are you? Get in here! Unfortunately, that's how most of us grew up. Maybe most of us grew up with dads like that, but that's how we have viewed God. Instead of hearing his voice as the voice of a desperate daddy who cannot find his two children. Where are you? Well, why aren't you here? Adam responds, and, and then you hear his next question. Who? Adam, who? Who told you that you were naked? 
Who, who, who did this to you? Why? Why is this suddenly a problem? Why do you think I didn't know that before? Why do you think you need to hide from me? Who's made this a big deal, Adam? Did you, did you eat from the tree I specifically told you not to eat from? Now, God didn't need to ask that question. He already knew. So there's something happening, and we're going to unpack that here in a moment. There's something happening. He, he already knows what has happened. And this, this last question he asked, actually, this time through studying Genesis 3, this is the question that has captivated me. What have you done? What did they do? I'll, I'll answer, I'll give you my answer from this week. They made a choice based on a perceived advantage they would have by eating that fruit. They made a choice thinking, if I eat this, then I can be like God. I'll have wisdom, I'll have power, I'll have authority, I'll have independence. If I eat this, it's going to bring me something that I don't already have. But somehow, in that very short amount of time, they've become convinced that they desperately need what it is they will get by eating this fruit. Even though God said, no, it's going to harm you. There are consequences. Don't eat it. But they chased what they perceived to be satisfaction. Don't we do that? I know this really isn't great for me. but it's just a little. And what it'll bring will be, you know what it brings? Shame. And and now here they are, (laughs) thinking that if they eat this fruit, suddenly they're going to be like God and they're going to have everything they wanted. Now they eat this fruit and they, they find themselves hoping that the fig leaves stay together as they dive behind an oak tree, like, don't, don't move. Didn't go the way they thought it was going to go, did it? So why is God asking them these questions? He knows the answers. Why is he asking these questions? He's omniscient. Why would he, why would he ask them these questions? Folks, he, he's pursuing them. He's pursuing them, much like he pursues you and I. Even in our shame, in our guilt, in our defeat... When we do understand and don't understand how guilty we are in our sin, God continues to pursue us with his mercy, with his grace, with his goodness. He's not running away from you like you've got the cooties. He's running towards you. He knows you're in trouble. He knows they're in trouble. He knows the source of their trouble, but he also knows he's the answer to their trouble. He wants them to come to grips with what they did so he can fix it. So his question, in essence, is, do you understand what it is that you have done? And the way they answer the question is something we are all very familiar with. Perhaps you hear the beep, beep, beep of the bus backing up. Because immediately they try to chuck each other under the bus. What is this that you have done? And Adam's answer is, The woman 
But wait, it gets better. Actually, way worse. The woman you gave me And the woman, it was a snake. The snake, he, he. That's more fig leaves. It wasn't my fault. I mean, it was, finally they get to the place where they and I ate. Listen, guys, you cannot blame your past, your lack of knowledge. You can't blame where you live, where you, who you live with. You, you can't blame any of that on anything else. This is on you. Did you all just disappear? Hey, there you are. (laughs) Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) My eyes are going really bad fast. All right. You you can't blame anybody else. You've got to take your own responsibility, your own ownership. The sin is yours, and so are the consequences. So are the consequences. So so, actually, let's start at verse 14. Um. God says to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed more than any other livestock and more than any other wild animal. You'll move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He'll strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I'll intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. He said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you'll return to dust. Without spending a ton of time on all the consequences, just, just kind of highlighting them, to the serpent, to the snake, who was used by Satan in this act, who, who seems to have been a very highly intelligent creature, who, who got around not by crawling, but some other means of movement, which I am thankful I didn't see a snake standing up walking around. That would have been uber creepy. Say, uh, God says, now you are cursed to crawl on the ground, you will slither along, and you will eat the dust as you crawl through the dust. To the woman, God says, you will experience suffering, even personal danger, in childbirth. He speaks about this, and this is probably the thing that has uh, contributed to more books written on Genesis 3 than anything else, is what does the phrase, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you, what does that phrase actually mean? And, And let me... I'm going to super simplify it and dumb it way down for myself and say there's a lot of options what that could mean. However, I think whatever it does mean, ultimately it's trying to communicate that in marriage there will be some very difficult situations between husband and wife that can all be traced back to the fall. It tells man your curse is you're going to have to work like crazy to get the ground to produce what you need to to feed yourself, your family, to provide a living for yourself. He curses nature itself. You see that in Romans chapter, Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, it talks about the futility of creation. It talks about how all of creation groans as if it is in labor, waiting for that day that God returns to restore creation back to its perfection. So, so this, this sin, this 
fall, this choice didn't just have consequences for Adam and Eve, it was, it was universal, and even you and I endure the consequences today. And the greatest consequence being the final one, that ultimately someday you are formed from the dust and you will return to the dust. There's death, just as God said there would be. Frank, I thought you said there was good news. There is. Let's read verse 20 to 24. It says this, The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So, so the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and a flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Lots there. But I think we see the, the mercy of God in three very specific ways. First, God gives them a chance. What does that mean? God kicks them out of the garden, and that is an act of mercy. You see that? It's an act of mercy. God, in his triune nature, looks at mankind and says, now he has the knowledge of good and evil, and if he eats of that tree of life and has to live forever in his shame, he is helpless and hopeless. He's forever condemned. He's locked into a life of shame. So instead, what I'm going to do, I'm going to remove them from the garden, and I will make sure that he doesn't get to eat of the tree of life. It's an act of mercy. The second picture of God's mercy we see in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as Adam and Eve hear the, the message of the gospel, they hear the very first promise of the Bible. And it is this, there is one who is coming who will make this all right. There is one who is coming who will crush the head of Satan. The second act of God's mercy is when he announces that though the war is on, the outcome will never be in question. Oh, it might seem a little, little crazy a couple times. He says, here's what's going to happen. So, so, so the seed of the woman is going to come, and the serpent is going to attack the back of his heel. And, 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 and many of you have um, more experience with snakes than I do. My experience with snakes usually is scream and run that way. Okay? But many of you have different experiences with snakes, and some of you are more brave than others. And I've seen some of you sitting in this room uh, pick up snakes. I've also seen some of you step just behind the head of the snake, right? But if you miss, <laughs> and the thing somehow gets away, it's like it kind of comes up, and then yeah, and it zaps you in the back of the leg. Now, depending on what kind of snake it is, you may be worried, you may not be worried. I'll never know. I'm in a different county by that point, okay? <laughs> but the picture of this is clear. That one will come, and you may get him in the back of the heel, but his foot's coming down on your head, and it is going to crush it. See, Satan got the back of Jesus' heel, it seemed, at the crucifixion, at the burial. And when that stone was rolled away, his head was flattened. You need to clap for that. That's okay. That's allowed. That's allowed. So, so there's mercy in this. But the greatest act of mercy you see in Genesis chapter 3 is that God looks at Adam and Eve, and he, I, I, I don't know, would God laugh in this moment? Probably not. 
But as parents, you understand when your child does something so ridiculously foolishly sinful and then thinks they've hidden it. We have a child who got into the pantry and closed the door because nobody could ever find them in the pantry if the door is closed. Except for my wife continued to hear weird noises and we thought we had rodents. So she opened the pantry door. There was a child on the floor with the thing of Oreos open and Oreos sticking out of her face. And yeah, there was discipline, but it did cause us to chuckle a little at the simplicity of thinking they could get away with it. God had to look at Adam and Eve and be like, fig leaves, seriously? You know that'll never cover your shame? Let me show you how much I love you. And Adam and Eve watched, probably in shock, as an animal was slaughtered before their eyes. The blood of another was spilled so that their shame could be covered. As God took the skins of those animals and dressed them, God said, no more shame. I'll clothe you in the only way that works. But a picture of what Jesus Christ did for you and I. Slaughtered because of my sin. His blood shed for my sin. So that he could take this robe of defilement that I wear, set it aside, and clothe me in his righteousness. Stop covering. Stop covering. Alcohol, drugs, work, church. Church is the most terrible way to try to cover. You have to bear with me for a second. This is bonus, so I apologize. But you're also going to have to bear with me or else you're going to be like, this guy's nuts. Don't be church people. Don't be, don't, be, don't be church people. Church people stumble, they fall, they mess up, they sin, they feel shame. And what church people do is they run from God. Because what church people do is they, they fall in for the lie that their acceptance is based on, on their behavior. So if I go to church enough, if I give enough, if I sing loud enough, if I carry a big enough Bible, if I, if I share the gospel, if I, all these different things, and it's like that's a, that's a church person. So the average church person when they sin, when they stumble, when they fall, hides, covers, and ducks behind a tree when they hear the voice of God. So don't be church people. Be Jesus people. Jesus people run to his voice. Jesus people run to their God. They know their acceptance is based on the righteousness of Christ. It's based on his life, his death, and his resurrection. So you run to him. They know, they know that instead of looking for a hiding place from God, they should be running to him for refuge. I'm going to tell you, if you know the love of the Father, you're going to run to him. No matter how much shame is built up. And, and, and if you're gazing at the cross, you know the love of the Father. You, you know the love of the Father is not, uh, is not pictured as the a curmudgeon daddy standing at the door like this, waiting for his prodigal son to return. It's about time you got home. Go wash up. We'll talk. <laughs> that's, that's not the, the father. 
that the Father? No. The Father that loves us is the one who stands on the porch waiting for us to come home. The Father that loves us is the one who runs off the porch, leaving sandals behind him, a cloud of dust, and squeezes the life out of that kid as soon as he sees him. The Father who loves us is the one who calls for a party, who celebrates the return. Why would you hide from that? Let's run to that, Father. Father, thank you for mercy, for grace, for love. Thank you that we can be known, that we can stand without shame, because as we stand, we don't stand in our own deeds, in our own goodnesses, in our own actions or activities. We stand in the righteousness of Christ before you, and because of that, you look at us and you see us as perfect. I, I thank you that we can run into your presence. I pray for the one who's here this morning who doesn't know the first thing about Jesus Christ. I pray that today, as they're wrestling with what they've heard, as they're wrestling with what they've seen, that they would understand that, that acceptance in your eyes is found through the finished work of Christ on the cross, that Jesus died where they should have, that he was buried, and that he rose again from the dead, proving that his death covered the cost. And Father, may they in their humility of heart and simplicity like a child to simply say, Jesus, be my Savior. And God, for those of us who've known you a long time, who are wrestling and struggling in our own sin, Father, help us to stop covering, help us to stop hiding, help us to enjoy the embrace of a Father who longs to dump his mercy and love on us. God, may we not hold anything back. And may we run into your presence, fall on our face before you, and enjoy your forgiveness. It's in Christ's precious name I pray.